0: This is the Mark Dolan Way. Top tips for mind, body and soul, some great life hacks and my favorite products of the week. This show is available on all podcast platforms, but do subscribe to the Mark Dolan YouTube channel where you can see the show every week. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. Let's talk about seed oils. What are they and why are they a problem? So seed oils are another name for so-called vegetable oils, which we were all encouraged to adopt in our diets. Going back to the 60s, 70s and 80s, this was because a scientist called Ansel Keys uh, created a very selective study in which um, he claimed and cited examples of saturated fat causing heart disease this has been contested it's controversial but it entered mainstream science uh, almost unquestioned and it meant and I don't know about you because I don't know how old you are but I was growing up I was born in 1974 I was growing up in the 80s and in the 80s everything was like low fat low fat low fat saturated fat was bad even though, let's be honest, saturated fat, given the fact that it's in fish and meat and dairy, is something that human beings have been eating for centuries, millennia. Uh, that uh, that was kind of glossed over and suddenly, no, no, no. What we need to do is we need to go low fat and we need to stop having these animal fats. So that would be, you know, lard, butter, that kind of thing, uh, ghee. And instead, we've got to replace these fats with... Vegetable oils. Now, vegetable oil sounds very healthy, doesn't it? I mean, vegetable. Who doesn't enjoy a vegetable? And and that's supernatural, isn't it? Well, the bottom line is they're not vegetables. OK, so sunflower oil. Sunflower is not a vegetable. It's a seed. Uh, you have corn, rapeseed, sunflower oil, soya bean oil, cotton seed oil. These are all of these so-called vegetable oils. And the problem with them is that they require... An industrial process in order to be produced. So for example, corn oil, which you'll be familiar with, is created by using a chemical called hexane. So essentially, you've got to use this astringent chemical to strip the oil out of corn. That doesn't sound very healthy, does it? And then you've got to kind of wash the hexane out, deodorize the oil and then you eat it. Um, Sunflower Oil. This requires a colossal number of sunflower seeds with which to extract the oil. Same with rapeseed. So it's not natural. Um, the rule of thumb, the kind of acid test of quality for an oil, is that it comes from good oil, comes from anything that you can squeeze and oil comes out. So things that are naturally oily. So palm. Palm oil. controversial because it's often not farmed not grown sustainably and that is a problem Um, so if you're going to have palm oil try to get responsibly uh, sourced palm oil sustainably produced and that does exist but the palm is a really healthy source of oil why because it's a very fatty plant if you squeeze a palm oil just drips out of it it's the same with olive oil olive oil olives are oily You squeeze them. That's why when you buy your extra virgin olive oil, it will say uh, cold pressed. I mean, that's all they have to do. They just press the olives and the oil comes out. Let me just remind you that you're using chemicals like hexane to make corn oil. And you're using, you know, high powered pressure to to get the oil out of out of um, sunflower seeds. And you need a gazillion just to make a small amount of oil. So that is it. It's anything fatty and oily. Avocado. And avocado is a naturally fatty fruit. You squeeze an avocado. It's the easiest thing to get the oil out of it. And then, of course, animal fats and all the rest of it. You buy yourself some meat. You can see the fat. You just can remove it from, you know, you can cut the fat off the meat. My grandfather used to cut the fat off his beef. And then he'd put that fat into the pan and he'd melt it down and use it as as uh, as as his fat for cooking and it was of course delicious because beef tallow or fat as it's known is packed with flavor but it's full of saturated fat which is controversial now let me say at this point as i always do in the show i am not an expert i'm not a scientist i'm not a medic there are lots of doctors and scientists who do think that saturated fat causes heart disease It's really bad for you furs up your arteries and kills you uh, they think that from what I've read, from what I've understood, I don't believe that's the case. In my view, since we came off saturated fat, when we went low fat, we've had an explosion in obesity. We've been eating carbohydrates and sugar instead of natural fat. So I think it's gone really badly. Um, I think it's nonsense. But do consult your physician and do seek expert advice if you change your lifestyle. Everything I say is just what my experience is uh, and what my what my um, my learnings have uh, taught me. So, uh, but but I will you know now that I've done that proviso, I will say that it's just natural, okay. That the fats that I'm talking about that are uh, we've been eating for millions of years are, are the ones that are in nature, and that is animal fat, and that is these plants and things like that. If if I just sort of drop you in the wilderness, you're not going to get any fat out of sunflower seeds, um, but if you find an avocado, or if you catch a rabbit, or if you catch a fish, or if you um, manage to hack off a piece of palm or some olives, you're getting fat. So there you go. Now, what is the problem, apart from the fact that they're not natural, what is the problem with these seed oils? Well, they are linked to health conditions, okay, uh, including inflammation. And there is a suggestion that these seed oils are obesogenic or linked to obesity, linked to inflamed arteries. Um, And uh, lots of other people suggest that they get headaches and they get all sorts of other symptoms. Um, I've got no proof of that, Um, but there's plenty of resources out there that will suggest that these seed oils are a health concern. Uh, It's interesting now because some Food companies, including manufacturers of uh, crisps or as the Americans call them chips, um, are are now using high oleic acid versions of sunflower oil. Now, why is that? Well, because there is some suggestion, some evidence that when you heat up these seed oils, things like rapeseed and and sunflower oil, uh, that it's makes the oil toxic it oxidizes it and it causes it to be bad for human health Uh, there is even a suggestion that just the production of these oils and storing them in a clear bottle in the supermarket means that they've become bad for you they've become toxic already uh, before you even heat them up Uh, but there's plenty of concerns about what happens to vegetable oils these seed oils when you cook with them Um, so there you go now uh, what is the solution Well, I've mentioned butter as a delicious, fabulous fat. You've also got avocado oil, which is expensive, but delicious. Um, My favourite mayonnaise is avocado oil mayonnaise. There's a British brand called Hunter and Gather, which I'd highly recommend if you can get that. It's a very international show, so I don't know if you can source Hunter and Gather internationally. You might be able to purchase it through Amazon. Uh, But the ingredients are just raw, free-range eggs, avocado oil, salt, butter, I think some a splash of white wine vinegar. Delicious tastes exactly like regular mayonnaise. But the problem with regular mayonnaise is it's full of those seed oils, which you don't want. So you've got uh, avocado oil, you've got the butter, you've got animal fat, you have palm oil, sustainably sourced. Um, you have ghee, which is delicious in cooking. And I've got another fabulous ingredient for you. And it's very cheap. And it does everything. And it is coconut oil so coconut oil is inexpensive and you can very often get organic coconut oil and it still won't cost you much i think i bought about 500 milliliters half a kilo of organic coconut oil recently for less than five pounds and that's a lot of fat that's a jar of fat again coconut very fatty very naturally fatty and uh, that's why it makes for a great oil and it's uh, it's quite high in saturated fat. I know you'll panic about that. And it means that when you cook it, it's very stable. It doesn't oxidize. It doesn't degrade. It doesn't lose its um, it's it's um, it doesn't lose its uh, infrastructure. Uh, this this is the issue with the, the, the seed oils they say what happens to them when they heat up. Um, another good test of a good oil, by the way, is if it's hard when it's cold which you'll have noticed all the good oils are, even if you if you go to a farmer's market and you buy olive oil in the winter, you'll notice it's kind of got little lumps in it and it's kind of turning solid because it's got the right balance of mono and saturated fats. So I'm a big fan of coconut oil. Now, not everybody likes the taste of coconut, including me. Um, so if it's a problem, may I recommend odourless coconut oil? Um, Biona, which is the one I'm holding at the moment, if you're watching, but I'll describe to those that are listening. Biona Organic Coconut Oil. Um, and what they've done is naturally extracted the coconut taste from the oil. And it does a job. It's excellent. And what I love about coconut oil is that I just think it's a real Armageddon product. Because if the world was about to end, if you've got coconut oil with you. You can eat it, okay? A rich source of energy, just pure fat. You can cook with it. Uh, You can use it on your skin. It's an excellent natural moisturizer. You can use it as a... It goes in your hair. Maybe your hair's a little dry. Just rub a bit of coconut oil into it. Um, You can... uh, Let's be honest, you can fry with it. It's an excellent frying device. Uh, and if you've got a problem with a device in your life, let's say your bike chain is a little bit um dry, you can put coconut oil on there. It basically does everything. You can eat it, you can put it on machines and put it in your hair. And I love it, and it's cheap and in my view, healthy. So there you go. That's coconut oil. Barefoot walking. I'm a big fan. Um, not quite sure how it happened, but I have started to do important bits of work barefoot. Um, because I I walk around, I get ideas for my work and I do little dictation and stuff like that. And I do it barefoot. So I walk the streets. I live in London, so I've got the city and I've got to worry about dog poo and all the rest of it. But I go around barefoot, especially when I'm being creative. And I find it makes me feel very free, uh, very connected to the ground. Obviously, they call it earthing, don't they? And I would highly recommend it. My proof of why barefoot walking must be good for you and why it feels good is when you're on holiday now have you noticed if you have a beach holiday you feel very relaxed don't you you feel very happy very sort of chilled out all is good with the world well that's probably because you're spending a lot of time barefoot if you're on the beach you're barefoot right and then have you noticed if you're on a beach holiday have you done this because i've done this a lot Uh, You come off the beach and and your shoes are all sandy and your feet are sandy. And so you're like, oh, you know what? I'll just go barefoot into the into the little town. So you come off the beach and you walk into the town and you get yourself an ice cream or something and you're still barefoot and you just feel fantastic, don't you? And you kind of think, well, maybe that's because I'm on holiday and the weather's good. It was like, well, no, it's also because you're not wearing shoes. So you are free. You feel great. So just try it in your normal life and you will pick up that holiday vibe. Um, There are lots of good arguments for barefoot walking. First of all, according to uh, podiatrists and other uh, other experts on human physiology, particularly in relation to the feet, uh, there is a there is there is a view that if you go barefoot, you walk in a more natural way that your foot lands on the ground correctly and that you've got the muscles and the ligaments and the joints and, and everything instinctively goes where it's supposed to. If you're barefoot. If you think about it, when you're wearing shoes, that's like a big old condom for your foot, isn't it? You're covering your feet and therefore you're masking the experience. And that is a big, big problem because you don't have that communication with the ground. Think of us as a species. We have prevailed for so long by being barefoot shoes are a comparatively modern invention Um, i think they're fantastic when it comes to not being cold so i do struggle with barefoot walking in the winter and there's been a few times when i've had to get back into the house because i cannot handle the kind of arctic conditions of walking walking or walking on cold ground Uh, but in normal weather give it a go i think you'll find it a game changer i think you will love it Um, there is also some suggestion that. It's good for your cells that you regenerate cells. Remember, you've got reflexology. Now, I'm a big fan of reflexology. Um, Reflexology is the science in which your foot has kind of a map of organs on it. You've got the liver, the kidneys, all the other bits and bobs. And what a reflexologist will do is using pressure points stimulate parts of your foot. So let's imagine you've got back pain or maybe you've got an issue with your liver. Um they will use their expertise to focus on a certain part of your foot and 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 just massage and press that individual bit based upon the map. And really there's an element of reflexology to barefoot walking or earthing, especially if you're in the park. I mean that's another thing. If you're worried about the pavement, you're worried about bits of broken glass or stepping on a nail or dog poo i understand your concerns i think it's worth the risk because i always feel good when i walk barefoot and i find it boosts my creativity but if you're concerned about that well then why don't you just go barefoot in the park so once you get into the park take your shoes off and just walk on the grass barefoot or maybe just try it when you're at the beach and and let that be the nursery slope for you um but but you know, I, I, I think it's it stands to reason that there, there must be an element of reflexology to barefoot walking because your feet touch the ground and therefore all the little nerve endings in your feet are going to be stimulated. And that's got to be a good thing. So it's lovely. Um, you do get some odd looks. I was barefoot walking the other day and a guy walked past me and said, nice shoes, mate. Uh, but this is the price you pay for being an innovator. I've got to say. Um, Anything else on barefoot? Well, you can get barefoot shoes. Okay. And what these shoes are is essentially they are shoes. They look like normal shoes, but they have a very thin, thin sole. Okay. Possibly, you know, three millimeters, something like three or four millimeters, very thin sole. And that way you still have the barefoot experience where you're touching the ground, but you're not actually going to stand in dog poo or get impaled by a chunk of glass. Um, And and what that does is that kind of creates the barefoot feeling. And so they're quite nice. There's a problem with most of the barefoot shoes, which is that they're very expensive. And I think they're a ripoff. And so are you ready for a Mark Dolan money saving hack? If you want barefoot shoes, just buy um, a normal pair of gym shoes. Right. So this is not going to work with your Nike Airs because the Nike Air has this very, very thick sole. But if you get something like Converse, now you'll be familiar with Converse, the American shoe. Um, It could also work with your basic gym shoes in a really cheap shop, 10, 15 pounds, the cheapest, crappiest little gym shoe. Uh, But let's use the Converse as the best example, because most of you will know what a Converse trainer looks like. And you know that it's got a thin sole. And here's how you turn it into a barefoot shoe for a fraction of the price. You remove the insole. OK, so you get your, your Converse or your, your basic gym shoe, remove the insole and you'll find there's just a pathetic layer uh, that remains and you just go around wearing those shoes and you'll find that they're exactly the same as barefoot running shoes or barefoot walking shoes. They're just thin. And it's a cheaper alternative. Uh, look through your shoe collection. See if you can find some shoes that do have a thin sole and take out the insole. And, and it may be that they're adaptable. Uh, but that works brilliantly. And I think that's a good way of getting into barefoot walking is to have shoes without insoles that have got a thin layer or barefoot shoes. Try those out and you'll get the bug. You'll, you'll get, you know, you'll get a taste for it. And then when you wear normal shoes that have got a thick sole, you'll, very, you'll feel very disconnected from from the ground, and it's not nice, so I do enjoy that, um, there's a lot of talk of barefoot running, I'm a bit concerned about that, now as you know I've got a duty of care in terms of your health and injuries and stuff like that, some people swear by barefoot running, and that means that they go running barefoot, okay, uh, and of course as a species we have been running without shoes again for millions of years, no problem, and then you have these barefoot running shoes, which is a shoe with a thin sole that you can go running in, all sorts of different brands. But I've heard a few horror stories of people getting lots of injuries from running for miles without the cushioning that you would get from a normal running shoe. I personally would not run in barefoot shoes or barefoot. I would run in conventional running shoes. But that's just my experience. Uh, I, I Don't know what your experience might be of that. Uh, So my recommendation is that barefoot is for walking only, but it's a free world. And if you have success barefoot running, good luck to you. Congratulations and well done. Well done. Right. How are we doing? A few other bits and bobs for you. Uh, My product of the week. Now, my lovely wife was expecting our first son many years ago and she had a craving for sparkling water probably because of morning sickness type stuff and it was something that she liked and made her feel better and i love sparkling water i think it's great i think one of the reasons why soft drink companies do so well um, is is the sparkling nature of their products because i gave up sugar in june of 2018 and i i sort of swapped from sugary soft drinks to sparkling mineral water and and, and actually i, I mean once you've had a couple, you sort of you forget the, the experience of drinking sparkling water is, is a bit like having a soft drink, you know. And you realize that the allure of Coca-Cola and 7-Up and everything else, of course, it's the sugar and it's the taste. But a lot of it is the bubbles. So try try going from a soft drink over to sparkling mineral water and see if you don't get used to that. Because you still get a buzz. It's still a bit of a drug. It's still a little little bit of a a thrill on your palate because you've still got the bubbles, especially if it's a nice, cold, fizzy mineral water. I love it. I love my Perrier and my San Pellegrino and stuff like that. If you want to jazz it up a bit, uh, you could squeeze a tiny bit of lemon into it and then a drop of stevia. And then you've got yourself a kind of light sparkling lemonade. Um, That's quite nice. Uh, Increasingly, there are a lot of products out there which are fruit infused sparkling waters. And they're really nice. And what they'll do is they'll have like the essence of peach and lemon so that when you drink them, they're not sweet because they're sugar free with no calories. But there's the hint, the essence of fruit in there and just takes the the edge off of that kind of plain, rather arid water taste. So they're almost fragranced, but naturally Uh, they're great highly recommend those but as i say you can can do it yourself you could put a little bit of mint into the water but sparkling water is is great and i would suggest good for you because it's basically water isn't it uh and it's, i mean i think it's got to be good for digestion you have your sparkling water sometimes if there's a little gas in there you burp so it's gorgeous it's great and my wife enjoyed it while she was expecting our first child but i used to go to the shop and come back with these bottles. Of fizzy mineral water and it was costing money and it was bad for the environment and also it was killing me physically because i'd come home with like six packs six one and a half liter packs of sparkling mineral water so this was not sustainable and i decided to do some research how can i make fizzy mineral water at home ladies and gentlemen the soda stream uh, which is a great device it uses a gas canister containing co2 and this canister, this this cartridge, big metal bottle full of CO2, goes into the Soda Stream device. The Soda Stream device is just basically about the size of a really really large bottle, and you put your bottle into the machine. You press the button. Uh, you, you you fill the bottle with regular water. I like to use filtered water, but of course you can use tap water. But I put my filtered water into the bottle you screw it into the soda stream machine so the footprint of the soda stream is not much bigger than the bottle itself press the button it pumps it full of co2 which is a marvelous thing and then you unscrew it and you get this wonderful pss, pss, this little explosion um, and that tells you that you've pressurized it you've uh, you've you've got some lovely gas into it and there is your fizzy mineral water it's the same components as any other fizzy mineral water but it's cost you next to nothing it really i mean i need to do the maths on this but you will just get tons and tons of bottles you know you'll get many many liters of of fizzy water from one canister so it's lovely you've got the initial purchase of the soda stream which is not cheap and that would be 100 110 120 pounds something of that ilk but i think it's a great investment because it's fizzy water forever and then with these gas canisters you you get as i say loads of bottles i mean i i can't remember how many bottles but i reckon i change the canister about every two months six weeks to two months just think how many plastic bottles of fizzy water i'd i'd have bought in the meantime so i think it pays for itself i think it's cost neutral it's good for your health better for the planet and yeah so there you go. It, it, it's a splendid thing. SodaStream is the main brand. Uh, Philips do one, lots of other companies. So I'm not really fussed about which brand you use. But SodaStream, I think, is the most reliable. Um, this is a bit of a hack, really, because originally with SodaStream in the 70s and 80s, when it became a very popular household product, a consumer product, it was about creating Coca-Cola at home because the, the format with SodaStream is that you put the special SodaStream branded cordial into the bottle, add water and then fizz it up. So originally the, the proposition, the idea, the unique selling point of SodaStream was soft drinks at home. But my thing, my solution is forget about that. Do not be adding syrups to anything. It's pure sugar. It's a disaster for your health. It's It's just water. You just make the fizzy water and cut out the middleman. It's a delight and I love it. I'm a big fan of the self-help guru, the remarkable Dale Carnegie. He is one of the founding fathers of self-help, and I'll be drawing on his expertise a lot in the course of this podcast. And let me tell you something about Dale Carnegie. He wrote a very good book, which is called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And... There are lots of causes of anxiety and one is catastrophizing and thinking, oh, I've just bought this house. What happens if I lose my job and become homeless? That's catastrophizing and it's pretty irrational, isn't it? But we do it. We do catastrophize. Uh, But in the book, he's clever because he has a way of flipping it and actually deploy the catastrophic scenario as a way of relaxing yourself so what he says is um if you're anxious about something write down the very worst case scenario and then just make peace with that so in other words um you you, you buy you buy or you know yeah you buy let's say you buy a flat and then you lose your job and you become homeless well Hopefully you live in a, a decent society where someone will take you in. So you've still got a roof over your head uh, or maybe you'll down downsize to a smaller property or maybe the government will step in and you will apply for social housing. But the bottom line is that you've just bought this place. It's not going to end in your death, is it? Or f- physically being maimed, right? You're not going to just lose your leg by becoming By by, by ceasing to own this property, Uh, so it's a brilliant idea. Is you just look at always the worst case scenario, and the worst case scenario is never that bad. And you're like, well, if that happens, I can live with that, and it really settles you. It really, really calms your anxiety. So whatever, whatever it might be, a new job, or you know, what happens if 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 that company presentation goes really bad? What's the worst case scenario that can happen? Well, the worst case scenario if the company presentation goes badly, uh, the boss will be furious. And I'll get fired. That's the worst thing that can happen. All right. Well, you get fired and then you'll do a CV and you'll get a new job. It's not great, but it's not the end of your leg didn't fall off and you didn't die. So it's great. You're worried about anything. What is the worst case scenario? Can you live with that? Brackets, you probably can. And here's the game changer. The worst case scenario probably won't happen because the worst case scenario never normally does. But that's a way of owning it. And it's lovely. And it makes me happy every time um, I, I've got a problem. I just think, well, what's what is the worst that can happen? And then that's OK, too. That's OK, too. Like this podcast. What if I do this podcast for 10 years and I reach a point in 10 years time where I, I have zero listeners and viewers? OK, I've, I've given 10 years of my life and I now have zero viewers thats is that that is I think you'll agree the worst thing that can happen on this podcast is to reach an audience of zero Okay, including like loved ones, family members. Um, All right, it's not the end of the world, is it? And what will I do then? Well, then I'll I'll keep doing it because it gives me pleasure and and therefore it's for me. Sting, the music artist, he said music is its own reward. Isn't that clever? So, you know, you you would think that Sting from The Police, that he writes these songs because he wants to be famous and he wants to make money and get to number one. But his argument is, yeah, all of that's lovely, but I would do it anyway. And a lot of people say that about their job, about their work. It's like I would do this for nothing, which you really shouldn't say in front of your boss or a client. But it's true, isn't it? If you've got a job you like, you would do it for nothing. And we'll talk about jobs on future shows. But but um, but yeah, I would. I, if I had no listeners and viewers, um, two options for me. Uh, maybe I stop because I think, well, what's the point in that? But if it gives me something, if it makes me feel good and I thoroughly enjoy talking to you every week, um, then perhaps I just carry on anyway. Who cares? I've got I've got no listeners and no viewers, but I enjoy it. And it's good for good for my mental, uh, physical health. I can work through ideas when I do the podcast. It gives me inspiration. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And then am I going to get zero viewers and listeners? No, it's not going to happen. You can safely say that. So the worst case scenario doesn't normally happen. Um, Can we talk about another brilliant element of Dale Carnegie's book, how to um, how to uh, stop worrying and start living? His one of his iconic tomes. And it's a very simple one. And it's to do with if you're being attacked or criticized and it feels terrible, doesn't it? It hurts you. There's pain. You worry about the implications of being attacked. We now live in an era of social media. You've got trolls going after you. I'm a broadcaster and people people tweet occasionally. I mean, I'm very lucky. I actually have a very good time online, but occasionally someone will will, will say something really nasty or unkind or untrue. And it hurts. Um, amazingly, the the TV and radio shows I do I have, have people who, who clearly don't like me or don't like my work uh, retweeting my videos saying, look at this rubbish. It's like, why are you amplifying me? Why are you giving me a platform? You're you're actually helping me to get a viral video by sharing this video that you hate with all of the other mates that you've got. Uh, it's crazy, but it's what people do. Um, and so, therefore, I mean, I'll give you an example. Howard Stern, excellent radio presenter. He, he said that um, he grew his audience from people that hated him. And that the more antagonistic and controversial he was, the bigger his audience became. Rupert Murdoch, the media entrepreneur, said that um, a newspaper will will do well in terms of sales um, if the reader is enjoying it, right? Even if they don't agree with it. And some readers will buy a newspaper they don't like, but they buy it every day. And it's because it stimulates them, it triggers them. So here is the great thing. If anyone has a go, if someone makes a remark about your hair or your outfit, or someone makes a remark about your work, or makes a remark about anything, any aspect of you that's negative, think of this following mantra. Nobody kicks a dead dog. Okay, what that means if someone attacks you, there's something about you that threatens them, that makes them feel insecure, that makes them feel inadequate. So be very flattered. If somebody attacks you online or in person, OK, because you have a power and that makes them uncomfortable. Nobody kicks a dead dog. Be flattered if somebody has a go at you. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. And you could just always you know, the, the worst thing ever is to be ignored. Right. That's how, if you want to really make someone else miserable, uh, don't go online and viciously troll them. And don't abuse them. Well, you shouldn't anyway. Just ignore them. That is kryptonite to anybody. To be ignored is the worst thing ever. But if someone's giving you attention, they're doing it for a reason. Uh, Possibly the more attacked you get, the better a job you're doing. You know, just own it. Just drink it up. Uh, It's terribly important to understand that you will always have critics. There will always be people that don't like what you're doing. Um, There are many media commentators out there who are considered quite controversial or even hated, um, including the uh, clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson. Right. Controversial guy. He he says things that many people find uh, to be unpalatable. Uh, I would argue that he's attacked a lot because he drops truth bombs. I think he says things which are true, and people don't like that. In, in history, if you drop truth bombs, you are often vilified. But here's the thing. Um, you just have to wait, and you'll get vindicated in time. That's my view of truth. I tweeted this the other day, and I said sort of heresy plus time equals truth. So often, you know, I mean, the people that said, the scientists that said that the Earth was round were tortured imprisoned and sometimes killed uh, because the prevailing ethos back in the day was that the earth was flat and if you said the earth was round you went to jail you were such a threat with your why would you have to jail somebody that has dangerous opinions which by the way turned out to be correct um so just you know just keep the faith with what you're doing and if you're getting pushback for what you're saying or who you are perhaps it's because within you is the truth and what you're saying is uncomfortable to people because it's human nature we don't like the truth it's uncomfortable isn't it um this is another thing that i do in my work a lot i'd recommend you do uh which is that um you should expose yourself to discomfort okay so i do a tv show and when i come off air we re- we reflect on 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 the positives because i always like to start with the positives uh, how did that go what is our appraisal of this this week's show um in a positive sense is that like, oh that worked so do that again that worked. do that again and then i always say to my team what was bad what was bad in the show and they'll be like you know they're british a lot of them most of them right they're very polite they're like oh no it's all good and no, no no seriously it's our job to see how we can make it better because there's nothing that can't be made better the the latest incarnation of the iphone can be better we know that because the next one will be could always, always be improved, um, and so how can we make it better? And 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 so I just say what was bad, and then we try to go through it and we see where those negatives are, and then I will go even further and go what 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 am I doing wrong? What what what, what were my mistakes tonight? How can I be better? Now that is uncomfortable to me, that is not a nice feeling, but I deliberately expose myself to that pain. Okay, that I'm not avoiding pain, I'm actually appropriating it bringing it on to myself and i'm saying to my colleagues please can you hurt me and make me sad and give me pain so i can be better and then what they'll do is they'll say yeah well you've got this habit where you kind of like say something three times by the way i probably do don't I, on this podcast um or your hair it was a bit strange today or or you let that guest off the hook you were not you know you were not tough tough enough with that guest or you tried to be funny uh, at that point, it wasn't funny. It was just rude or something, you know. And I, tr- I try to bathe, bathe in that, that constructive criticism. And it has to be constructive. It can't be personal uh, and and non-constructive. So the feedback can't be, um, well, the problem, Mark, is that you're not talented. Or your face doesn't look right on TV. Or um, your views are inappropriate. Or, you know, no, we, we cannot be attacking uh, the the basic fundamentals of a person that will not change. That's the worst thing ever. If, if the note was, can you have different opinions or can you look, can you can you make your face different or, um, you know, can you have a different sense of humor? No, do not allow any of that to prevail. And by the way, there are plenty of workplaces and relationships where you'll, you'll have a partner that tries to change you. I had a girlfriend once who recommended I take up smoking. She said, I think you'd look quite attractive smoking. Can you imagine what a terrible piece of advice that is? That was not a good relationship. I think you'll agree. And actually a very nice person. But that was a bad moment. And I wasn't having it. The idea that you would improve yourself by taking up smoking. Not great, is it? so there you go that is it um it's it's bathing yourself in discomfort and it doesn't have to be all day long but just have a window in the day where you expose yourself and do it with family members do it with your partner which is you know what what was bad about me today because you've got got two great options and and i learned this from criticism i do stand-up comedy And I'm actually quite good at reading comedy reviews about myself, um, especially since I came up with this um, mentality, this way of responding to a review. I'll get a review of do a a comedy show, right? Do an hour. It's got jokes in. Um, My main reviewers are my audience. Okay, so if I do an hour and they're laughing for an hour, it's a good show because nobody can fake laughing end up. So that, that is the review. So that's why I'm I'm quite relaxed about newspaper or journalist reviews, because it's like, well, the audience will decide, A, have I sold lots of tickets because they had a good like, good time last time and, and did they laugh? And that that's it, right? So in a way of the reviews are in. And if I do a show where no one laughs, what I will do is get rid of those jokes and do different jokes that make them laugh because that's what comedians do. I mean, comedy is, in a way, the simplest and easiest thing to make better because you just stop saying the things that didn't make them laugh and, and say other things that do. And it's trial and error. It takes a long time. But I would argue a good metaphor for uh, for most uh, creative output. And but then you've got the secondary review, which is a journalist from a newspaper or a website. And when I read those reviews, okay... I use them as a resource. What I do is I read the review. And I think to myself. Are any of these aspects of the review true? Okay, so if it's a negative review and it says he does this, this and this. Very often I just think, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I I, I do this, this and this and it's really annoying and it spoils the show. So I have improved my act from reading reviews that point out bad things. Now, they don't know that I'm going to use this negative review as a resource with which to make myself better. But essentially, they've given me a free professional consultation. Uh, they've directed the show and it cost me nothing. Right. Do you know how much it costs to get a director to come and direct your show, especially an industry professional like a journalist who's watched thousands of comedy shows, reflected about comedy, written maybe books about comedy. You've got that colossus of a comedy expert watching your show, they've given you a one-star review, right? So other comedians, they see the one-star review, uh, they read it, they cry, they get angry, and um, they're in a bad place. I don't. I get a one-star review, and I'm like, right, what can I gain from this? What can I get out of this review? And it says, I stand odd. So like, yeah, that's a good point. I'll improve my posture. Oh, it says that... Um, there was there was one particular review and it said that he, he's he got these really good jokes, but then he's got this annoying habit of then saying another thing after the joke and other comedians would be insecure and like, oh, shut up. You're being horrible. Right. Whereas I am I'm immersing myself in the constructive criticism. I'm immersing myself in the pain. I'm open to what they don't like. And I'm thinking, okay, so I actually stopped doing that. I would just do the joke and they're laughing and not say another thing, right? Just finish, finish the joke, the audience laugh and then move on to the next joke. But I used to add little bits, little twiddly extra bits, right? Got rid of it because of that review. And that was a one star review. The person hated me and they won't be happy if they hear this. They won't be happy that they helped me with that review because I think the one star was bitchy and they're like, let's take Dolan down. But actually, even if someone attacks you, there is resource within that. That you can make make um make some use of. So there you go. So nobody kicks a dead dog. And we know that success teaches you nothing. And what can you learn from a five-star review? No, the one-star review is the one you need to find and actually glue it to the wall. Oh, and that's the other thing I wanted to say is that sometimes you'll get a review, or maybe for you, if you're if you're working in an office or any kind of enterprise. Um you, you, you see what you can get, which is useful for you. But the other thing is you are entitled to look at their motives and push back. OK, so I've had I've had bitchy reviews that were not about the show, but about me. It's like they've written this article because they don't like me and it's an agenda. And those those reviews, I just read it and go, well, look the audience laughed and you're saying these things i don't agree with that you're saying i do this thing which is bad no it's one of the best things i do you didn't like that joke about the swimming pool well that's one of my best gags the audience always laughs i've been doing that joke for a year now so if you sometimes if someone attacks you or criticizes you you're entitled to say nah i've I've thought about that because i'm very open to anything that is bad but i'm gonna i'm gonna say um i disagree with you right so so i've I've had some bad reviews where i'm very relaxed because like it's wrong the review is wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is probably because they were not focused on the truth of your act. They were focused on we've decided we're not going to give this guy or this woman a good review. Um, I think you can sniff it out. You can sniff out when feedback is is, is useful and when it contains truth. And I think there's other times when it's, let's say, the boss is horrible to you in a meeting and you're like, you know what? This is politics. I, I'm doing a good job. My quarterly sales are the highest I've ever done and I'm delivering for this company. And the boss says I'm not, but that's just like the numbers don't add up. So then it becomes about the boss and maybe the boss is jealous because you're so good that he or she wants to um, wants to get you out because they see you as a threat. So there you go. Nobody kicks a dead dog. And I think that pretty much takes us to the end of the show. It's been lovely chatting, and I can't wait to see you and chat to you next time. Goodbye.